What is up, everyone? My name is Adnan Shafi, and I'm going to be your host once again uh, for Pariah Nation. This is now officially the last episode of season 17, and I'm really, really excited about what we're going to be talking about today. We'll be talking about my former school, but we're also going to be talking about the future of African education and why I think that this institution that we're going to be talking about, the African Leadership Academy, is leading the way in that department. So for our guest today, we have the Dean of the Academy, Dean Hatim. Would you just like to introduce yourself and tell us a bit more about you and your relationship with ALA? Uh, absolutely. So my name is Hatim Al-Tayyib. I'm from Sudan by nationality, um, but I grew up primarily in Cairo, Egypt. That's the place where I feel the most local. Uh, I've been at ALA, um, I'm starting just my ninth year now, uh, over two stints. So the first time was between 2009 and 12, when I was a teaching fellow and I lived in the residence and um, was you know, lucky enough to be around in the early days of the school. And uh, I came back in 2016 after being away for, for four years in this role. And I'm thrilled to be chatting to you on the 17th season. That's uh, quite an accomplishment. I'm very curious to understand how that math works. Uh, just on the seasons, it's actually quite crazy. I don't know how how long we've been doing this for. I think it's almost two years now. Uh, but it's, you know, four episodes, one a week, and uh, that forms the season. So it's actually been a really long time. It's really, really crazy. But there you guys have it. Dean Hatim, welcome onto the show. I'm so, so excited to to be getting into this topic, especially well, well, at a crossroads, I'd say, especially with COVID-19, when education is taking new steps towards you know online learning but also people have been rethinking uh different ways of teaching especially african history especially in light of the black lives matter protests of 2020 so let's just start from the beginning and talk about the african leadership academy what is the african leadership academy why was it founded and when was it founded yeah, great. Um, so ALA opened its doors in 2008. That's when the first students arrived. Uh, but the idea was taking shape over the course of many years prior to that, I think as early as 2004. Um, the institution is based on a simple premise, which is that leadership potential is probably evenly distributed across all young people, but the opportunity to translate potential into impact is not and that uh, major contribution that uh, we can make towards um, impacting the future of the continent and bending the arc of history towards uh, more dignified lives for more Africans, which is what everyone deserves, is to uh, intervene at a point in young people's lives when you can make a big impact on, on what they choose to do um, and to attempt to generate a, a a series, like a, a, a network or a generation of ethical and effective young people from across the continent. That's, that's the big idea of ALA, and that's why it was founded. Yeah, I can definitely attest to that. And especially when, when I was considering applying, uh, I'd, I thought of myself as someone who was very interested in moving the African continent forward. <clears throat> and not only just that, but doing it in a way whereby you're helping people of all classes, of all races, of all backgrounds, uh, essentially live what is what we'd call a good life. And essentially just having access to all these different resources. 
I'd say it was quite transformative, my experience uh, at the academy and having dealt with the alumni and having dealt with the curriculum itself. And I think that is personally really, really powerful. And I, I think I first got to ex exposed to ALA when I saw Fred Swanaker's speech and Fred Swanaker is actually one of the founders of the school. And he made a speech uh, on, on TEDx, I believe it was, and he talked about African leadership. And I actually think that it's, it's really crucial, this idea of leadership, because most people actually point towards the people <clears throat> who actually took control after independence, like Kwame Nkrumah, they talk about Leopold Senghor, they talk about people like Jomo Kenyatta, they talk about uh, all these different leaders, how they essentially took the mantle and they said that they were really, they were visionaries. They looked to all these different places and they said that we want to actually change things. And most people would actually agree if I would say, for example, sometimes that appetite for change has sort of decreased over time. And especially now as we've been, as the African continent has, you know, taken different loans from, you know, the IMF, World Bank, et cetera. And, you know, the effects that that has had on the African continent, I would actually argue that it's made us more dependent on outside uh, actors compared to actually making us self-sufficient. So I think it's it's actually really interesting, this idea that we should start from the root and just see we need to inspire, we need to get people who are inspired to be leaders and we, we need to give them that right opportunity. And could you just actually tell us a bit more about the curriculum? Because I can personally tell you that it's it's changed the way I think and the way I view leadership. But just tell us a bit more and inform the, the listeners about what the curriculum is about and what it's designed to achieve. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think uh, it's useful to think about ALA. Um, I think like many mission-driven residential institutions, uh, both in terms of the explicit curriculum and the implicit curriculum. And, and sometimes I think the implicit curriculum is more powerful. Explicit curriculum is, um, you know, there, there are three core courses that all ALA students have to do in the two years that they're here. Um, which we think are sort of tailor-made for the mission of the institution. Students have to do a two-year sequence in writing and rhetoric, which is about effective written and verbal communication, but it's also, you know, really clarifying your writing is about clarifying your thinking. Uh, there's a two-year sequence in African studies, which in the first year is a multidisciplinary survey of issues of African concern. And in the second year, um, students can choose two out of eight deep dives into a variety of areas of investigation that are more disciplinary focused. So you can study film or um, philosophy or uh, politics or um, social justice. Uh, and then there's a, the course that usually gets the most airtime, which is the entrepreneurial leadership course, which is really about um, building the skills, habits, and mindsets of ethical and effective leadership. And it's um, a series in the first year of, uh, projects of increasing autonomy and complexity, where students are learning to apply the design thinking process to um, you know, work from a need towards a solution. And then in the second year is really about participating in a simulated economy where every student has a chance to um, bring something to market, whether that's a grant funded or, or revenue generating activity. Um, and in all of that, you're working and collaborating with peers. And then alongside all three of those courses, students have to do the typical kind of high school requirements of maths and sciences and humanities, which are aligned to the Cambridge curriculum. So it's quite demanding the explicit curriculum, the, the academic work. Um, the, the reason I mentioned the implicit curriculums, I think most, most students, and I'd be interested to hear uh, Adnan if you feel the same way, when they reflect on their time at ALA, um, often say that they learned 
the most from their peers. Um, and so, you know, the, the most valuable input that ALA has is we get this opportunity to recruit people from across the continent, from every country, uh, regardless of their background, whether that's financial, political, racial, socioeconomic, um, geographic, linguistic, uh, which is great because you really experience a wide swath of other African experiences. And um, yeah, I hope that that's also a powerful, powerful learning tool. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just going to unpack that a bit, especially um, with my experience. When I first walked into the academy, I mean, I came from the traditional schooling system. And I, told, I always tell people that to a large degree, the systems of schooling that we've inherited, are, they are taking the baton from former colonial models that are now sort of being shifted. Like, you know, the system is still the same but the content might be also slightly different. So even if you look at different, um, you look at different educational systems, I feel like the traditional educational system in general, the way I've experienced it, uh, both in the Kenyan system school and the British system school and otherwise, especially for African students, a lot of it is actually prepping you to become someone that's, for example, just like an employee. And that's not exactly a bad thing, right? But that I feel like if we're dealing with trying to get people of all backgrounds to achieve what they want. I believe that you can't just cater to that sort of demographic who's like fine, for example, working for someone or just for example, <clears throat> helping out with a project and not necessarily like leading the project because there's different people from different backgrounds. Some people are, for example, more enthusiastic about actually being you know, uh, entrepreneurs or they want to lead their own projects. They want to look into research. So I feel like from my experience of the educational system and from what I've heard from other people, it's kind of constrained in terms of the skills that we're learning. And some people even feel a disconnect between what they're learning and how it applies to the real world, especially the African narrative and the way it's being taught in schools. So when I came into ALA and I got, like, I got exposed to this idea of build, you know, believe, understand, invent, listen, deliver. It shifted the entire my entire presuppositions of what education was supposed to be in the first place because not only did I see myself as you know a student who needs a teacher to you know teach me something I remember one of the teachers actually famously said you are your best teacher and your the knowledge is out there it's up to you and go, go to go and get it so when I was exposed to that sort of background I automatically felt as if I had agency over my future and not just agency over my future but this idea that you could find problems within your community and you don't necessarily need to be the stereotypical leader where you're authoritarian, you know, I'm going to come here and save everyone or I'm going to sort this place out. You work with the community to provide a solution that is good for the community and the other people as well in the area as well. And it's long-term sustainable. So that was the first time I ever saw that. And I wondered why aren't we getting uh, on average, like, why isn't this something that is being taught in school? And that's something I mainly learned from the entrepreneurial leadership program. Another thing was African studies. I know there are some schools, for example, back in Kenya that do teach um, African studies, but it's mainly regional. But I think that some schools also need to go further and look at how African history is actually intertwined with other parts of the continent and to look at how, as a continent, as a collective, we actually do have shared issues that are traced back to history. Even in the pre-colonial period, it would be great to understand history of different parts of the continent. So there's 
greater understanding of why Africa is the way it is today, because largely the conditions are actually very similar based on our pasts. And obviously we had different countries that had, you know, access to, you know, these colonial uh, pieces of land. And like, you know, for example, you have the French who had large pieces of land, the British had large pieces of land. And so you're going to have very similar histories for those places. So, I mean, that's definitely hats off to Ailey um, for that. And I would ask you uh, perhaps uh, to expand because you, you did talk about uh, the curriculum and the implicit curriculum. Um, how did they go about designing the implicit curriculum? Is it something that came out by itself or uh, is that something that just they, 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 they wanted to create an environment of people who had a certain type of vision? Was uh, Just explain to us about how that came about. Yeah, I mean, I would say, firstly, that ALA altogether is still very much a work in progress um, across all dimensions and not just not just the school, but within the school, not just, you know, the, 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 the typical curriculum versus the hidden curriculum or implicit versus explicit. Um, so I've, I don't want to present anything as though it's the be all and end all and the final version or even a version that other schools can and should learn from necessarily. Um, I think that uh, there are elements of the non-academic curriculum, let's call it that, that are by design. You know, we design rooming pairs and halls so that they are diverse and representative. We design advisory families so that they're diverse and, and representative. Um, and then there are other parts that just emerge organically, you know, which uh, clubs, societies, and communities catch on, which rituals catch on, how do they change over time? And that's, you probably want a mix of those things. Um, but I can say that, you know, yeah, people are um, trying to be thoughtful about every element of the experience and thinking about how these elements reflect the values of the institution, the mission of the institution, um, and what we know about how learning happens. And I'll also perhaps just give my own experience as well in relation to, to that, that hidden curriculum, I'll call it, and the impact that it had on me. Because, I mean, I was in a very, very particular position. I was in the office hall, which is one of the halls at ALA. And I remember just walking through and, you know, you'd eventually find out about people's stories. So, I mean, one of the people in my second year who used to live uh, in the in the room right next to mine, um, actually focused on taking plastic bags and repurposing them so that they can actually make bricks and not only just bricks. Now they're doing furniture and things like that. So you came, I mean, you came across so many people who were they were not really thinking within like a box, right? And they were just sort of thinking of you know this is like they're always coming up with ideas and not just ideas. I think the key part is execution. And unfortunately, I feel like sometimes like if you're in any school and this applies to like um, whether it's, you know, schools outside of the continent or whatever, I feel like this this model of, you know, entrepreneurial leadership, et cetera, it really thrives in terms of making people see their full potential and making people see that this is actually what I'm capable of. You have an idea and you can execute it. Like, you know, creativity is actually something that's being encouraged and also failure is another thing that's being encouraged. I mean, I remember walking to one of the first sessions and uh, uh, one of the teachers literally just told us, you're going to fail, right? And, you know, people were taken back by that. Some people were offended. Some people, you know, they're like, you know, why would he even say that? You know, but that's actually the reality of things. And I feel like it also exposed something else in our 
educational system that you know if you get a bad mark that's a bad thing right but people don't see it as you know failure is one of those things where you can look at it and be able to actually work on that and we learned about prototyping and all these different things like you know you, it's better to have a fast prototype that doesn't work perfectly but it's a prototype you make you improve on it you listen and then you deliver the final product so i believe that this 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 idea of entrepreneurial leadership is actually something that i would argue that the continent actually really needs because it also tells us that you don't necessarily need people to lead from up top you can actually have community leaders and you can also like you know have individualized leaders who can actually take agency and like ownership over their life fully so definitely i mean if people also like are listening and they're intrigued and want to perhaps apply this is probably the biggest thing that i've i've taken from the african leadership academy and now to get on to you know we've been talking about applications i, I want to dispel a bit of controversy uh because i know there has been some controversy in the past uh but there was a headline you know uh, uh if you look at the fees on you know the page and everything uh people actually say oh this is the most expensive school in africa could you just tell us a bit more about how misleading that actually is and how accessible this academy is actually supposed to be yeah absolutely uh, i appreciate that you bring up the point um so every now and then there'll be a an article or a listicle somewhere that's you know trying to list the fanciest most expensive schools on the continent and when they list ALA they'll typically list you know the top which i think is unfortunate because the reality is um you know 95% of ALA students receive some kind of financial assistance and the majority of ALA students are paying uh 10% of the fees or less the sticker price uh so while the total cost of attending ALA for families that can afford to pay that much is high but the number of families that are paying that much is very low and that's just representative of the economic realities on the continent um everyone is evaluated the same way when they apply and you can apply in four different languages and that's also an access commitment you can apply in english but you can also apply in french portuguese or arabic we review all all applications the same way and if you're admitted um will assess what your family's ability to contribute is and we expect every family to make a contribution uh but you can make a contribution that's as low as less than a percent or 0.1% of what the total cost of attendance is um all the way up to 100%. Uh so I think it's unfortunate that people see that and they get discouraged and they say well this is obviously just for the sons and daughters of very wealthy people that's not the case um and I think I'm glad that you brought up that point. Yeah, and I want to just let people know. I mean, this this A like the model of ALA it, it actually goes far beyond the school itself, and it's not just something that can benefit the students that are coming out of ALA. But I think that there's also, <clears throat> I mean, this is something that governments could also look into in terms of modeling how they they work with something like higher education or even high school. I think one of the major issues that people also forget is that after colonialism, the resource allocation. within countries and like within the continent and the the global north as well it wasn't equitable right so even then you're going to have educational gaps and what i feel like is that sometimes governments actually need to go that extra mile some people can go all the way to high school and they can't afford to pay the rest but i've personally seen people go through ala and through ala they've been able to show their potential and they've been able to achieve quite a lot by being able to get into universities across the world and within the continent and actually returning to the continent if like outside of the continent to actually do work on the continent 
So I feel like there's a lot that can actually be learned from that. And um, what, what we need to do is essentially make educational education more accessible to people. It's not just necessarily about, oh, the educational system is flawed, but the systems that facilitate education are also flawed on the continent. And I think that there needs to be more thinking done about how, for example, you can actually get base level education to as many people as possible and, you know, uh, perhaps pursue similar, you know, modeling schemes. I mean, that's also like a bigger conversation because it really depends on the different countries and what they're going through. But honestly, I think that that's one of the things, one of the major, major strong points of ALA. But out of just curiosity, could you just tell us uh, perhaps, you don't have to mention any students' names or anything, but could you just give us an example of one of those case studies of where someone has actually, they've not really been able to afford the the original, like the, the sticker price or whatever, and they've been able to come to the academy and what they're actually doing for the continent now, for example. Yeah, happily. Um, I mean, I think I'll point, I'll point to a few and people can go check them out. But before we talk about specific examples, I think it's useful, you know, just from a position of humility to appreciate that ALA's model um, is 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 not is, it's not super sustainable, right? It's a very large investment in a small number of people, and that's not going to be the approach that solves the major problem um, that you're referring to, which is how do you make sure that every child in Africa gets a high quality education? And that's a really difficult problem. Um, it's not a problem that we have a lot of really good examples of how to solve, and you know there are there are examples in other parts of the world that we can probably learn from. But I don't want to pretend that, you know, I just wish more people were doing what ALA is doing because that's not, that's not the way. Um, there has to be, there has to be, um, you know, much more scalable, replicable, affordable ways to make sure that every child can um, access the sorts of basic literacy and knowledge that make you free um, and let you live a dignified life, you know. Um, and maybe part of that is about self-empowerment. Maybe part of that is about EL, but it's also about just, you know, numeracy and literacy. And we got to crack those problems. And I don't want to pretend like ALA has figured that out. Um, in terms of, of, of alumni that, that I think are, you know, worth spotlighting or highlighting, um, you know, we've, did, we've done a lot on our website to, to tell different stories. You can go to africanleadershipacademy.org slash redefine and look at... Uh, a campaign that we launched a couple of years ago that celebrates, I think it's not 12 different alumni who've taken different paths, some who've become, you know, musicians, some who've established schools in their home country or hometown, um, people who are research scientists or inventors. And uh, yeah, and I think it represents a variety, a diverse range of leadership paths that people have taken that we think are worthwhile, all of which have the potential to, you know, have a meaningful and outsized impact on, on other Africans. But I also think it's early, you know, ALA is only 13 years old. Um, the average graduate is still younger than 30 years old. There's a lot that people are still learning and, and piecing together. And, um, you know, I think I'm hopeful that we'll continue to say, see a building wave of, of impact. Yeah, I totally agree. And even on the educational point, I think what, what I should have perhaps clarified, I think yeah, what I'm trying to say is like, you know, if you have people who have particular interests in, you know, projects or they really want to be those people that I talked about, let's say where you're not necessarily focusing on something like the traditional educational route, there should be avenues for those people to get access to those resources. And that's also another big question 
Uh, but I feel like Ailey's model really facilitated that in terms of the basic tools. And it can obviously come in many different forms. It doesn't necessarily even have to be as expensive. And there's different, like, you know, the ideas are the most important thing and the skills are the most important thing. How you get those skills across and how you get the resources to teach those skills, I guess that's a different question that the governments themselves actually need to perhaps answer. And now even speaking again, once like heading back to, you know, the curriculum, um, what would you say separates this curriculum from, from others? And are there any plans to uh, standardize this curriculum and actually get in partnerships with other African schools so you can, for example, have proper African studies, you know, departments in every single school where you have uh, a syllabus that they go through. Do you see ALA sort of taking the position of, for example, like Cambridge in the way they have examinations and then maybe you have ALA ease or something like that, examinations yeah, years down the line. What do you think about that? Uh, yeah, the idea is very exciting to think about, right? That, um, you know, uh, if ALA is achieving some level of decoloniality in the way that we're approaching teaching and learning, can we uh, replicate that across other learning institutions and, and thinking about a credential or an accreditation is one way to think about that. My personal take is, you know, I, I think it's still quite early. I think we, um, we need a stronger and more concrete and uh, defensible track record. We just need to be more, um, we need more experience under our belt and to have a lot more confidence about the ways that we think about teaching and learning and, and have that be grounded in best practice. So to go back to the first part of the question, which is, you know, how, how does that separate ALA from other schools? You know, I think that we've set out uh, with the intention of developing a tailor-made curriculum that achieves outcomes that last long beyond school. And I think there's other curricula that do that. Um, and the things that are particular to ALA are just the things that we care about. We care about people who have a a meaningful understanding of the past, present, and future of the continent. We care about people who want to take responsibility and feel empowered to take responsibility for having a meaningful positive impact. And I hope lots of people will choose to care about those things too. And, um, you know, over time, I've also just come to appreciate that there are a lot of, there, there's a lot of excellence in the world of education around the world. And innovation doesn't have to be about doing something that's never been done before but about finding the right tools for an impact in the context that you're in that matters. And if there are things that ALA can learn from other schools that are, have been achieving wonderful things for a long time, then I hope we'll learn those things too. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's, it's definitely early. And I'd say that if you look into, you know, the clock of, you know, you look at some of these major institutions around the world, they've been around for almost 200 years or something like that. And people would argue that they're starting to get, you know, more and more established. I think it's actually a great start, though. And we've started to see now the African leadership universities coming up in Rwanda. There's also one in Mauritius. And I would personally even just say that um, this is this is a, it's a good place to start in terms of uh, ideas. And that's what I was saying. The ideas are actually the most important thing. And <clears throat> I mean, I hope that uh, other schools can perhaps, comes, uh, perhaps come up with different you know, models, you know, and to see how that works, for example. But generally speaking, I mean, I did a podcast, I think it was maybe six months ago, talking about the educational system uh, in African schools around, you know, just how we can essentially 
you know, improve uh, education as a whole. And I remember one of the, the key areas that I was just talking about is this idea of like, you know, the zeal of uh, just having that uh, idea of trying to actually push Africa forward, which many people actually do have, but it also comes implicitly in educational systems. Like, you know, you, you'll always learn about World War One, World War Two, but uh, you'll never really learn about, and I'm obviously making a general statement, this could be false in many parts of the continent, but it's very rare from what I've heard in my fan base uh, on TikTok and, you know, uh, Instagram, all these different platforms, people telling me I didn't learn this in school, right? When they hear about, uh, you know, the Malian Empire, or when they hear about, you know, the Swahili traders, or when they hear about, you know, the great, great Zimbabwe. And I think what, what people are actually looking for is that we live in a globalized world where unfortunately Africa's story is very much monopolized by people who sometimes actually don't have the best interests of the continent at heart, or sometimes they don't have the knowledge to speak on the continent. So it's all about actually providing people with that platform and getting those resources. And this is actually what we talked about last episode, that the diaspora actually play a really key role in being able to help people in terms of resources. Because even things like journals, for example, and this will actually lead quite well into the next question. Uh, you know, if you look at journals, for example, people are really struggling to get published on the African continent. And sometimes they get sucked under, uh, you know, this sort of vacuum where you have, you have a Western academics uh, and mainly not even like African academics that have a, a voice on the continent. And sometimes people have to leave the continent to become authorities in a certain field. So that actually brings me to my next point. Um, you're essentially providing these young people, these promising young people with tools to be able to gain knowledge from all different places around the world, to have skills and essentially come back to the continent and work on their own community projects, or at least just work on their, in their own shape, way, shape or form. Uh, of just trying to improve the continent, whether it's in their own locality or in a different country on the continent. So what sort of support is ALE giving to alumni that have graduated and let's say gone to study abroad to come back to the continent? Because I remember, I recall actually on, la on the last episode where I was discussing with Ayomide and a couple of other people, and they, they did mention that sometimes it's really difficult to even want to come back to the continent because some people feel like there's no opportunity. So are there any systems in place that are helping alumni and providing them, let's say, with job opportunities or showing them to people and like, you know, building a network with them so that they can work on their projects, et cetera? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and I think I can, I can begin to answer it by referring back to something I said a little bit earlier, which is that, uh, you know, ALA represents a pretty significant investment in a small group of people. And uh, the majority of that is funded philanthropically by people who just believe in the idea and in the mission. And as part of our stewardship of that investment, um, it's important for us just to keep track of what's happening. So ALA spends a lot of energy, um, you know, just knowing what alumni are up to and, and staying in touch with them and having them stay in touch with the institution. And that, you know, the first thing you're worried about is are they doing well and are they progressing through university? And the good news is yes, as ALA students generally graduate on time or early. Um, are they finding work? The answer is yes. Generally speaking, they, they are all, you know, 50% are employed before graduation and another 25% within three months and the majority within six months of graduation. Um, and, and importantly, like, do they live out a meaningful relationship with the continent? And, uh, you know, we, around the decennial in 2018, did a big study, which we refreshed year on year after that, of where alumni are. 
And what we found for the inaugural cohort is within three years of completing university, and, and this is, you know, the majority of them are studying outside of the African continent, within three years of completing university, I think it's something like 75 or 80% are back on the continent, which is a strong, a strong figure. And I, you know, allows you to start having a conversation about what the right number is and the right number probably isn't hundred percent all the time. Uh, how, how does that happen? I mean, I think ultimately people are drawn by the opportunity to do something meaningful and impactful. And often, particularly after a few years, you know, through the beginning of a career, um, graduates will find that the place where they can have the most meaningful impact is actually on the continent and not being employee number 5,000 in some large firm, um, which is exciting. You know, I would want people to come back because they think it's the, it's, it's a meaningful, fulfilling, exciting thing to do and not because they feel guilty. Um, so how do you create the support structures for that? You know, a lot of, um, ALA's work, at least a full third of our ALA's work is, is, is what we do with alumni creating networks uh, of young people and people who are further along in their careers who have a particular sector that they're interested in and creating you know connections for alumni to get internships and be placed in their first second or third job and to connect with mentors and more experienced people and with each other uh, so that they can imagine the sorts of projects that you're that you're talking about and and have the confidence to pursue them i think that's absolutely crucial i mean we we're actually dealing with a huge issue of brain drain on the continent. And <clears throat> I mean, the, the main issue with that is that you have people who have sp specific skill sets, which are actually very key to economic growth or their essential skills in terms of like doctors and things like that. And I feel like this is one of the major things in terms of if we're going to see the impact of the academy and the universities as well, those in Mauritius and Rwanda, I'd be really excited to see what the impacts are like in the next 10 years or so, or 20 years, just seeing what kinds of projects people have done. As you've mentioned, some people have actually gone abroad and they've come back to start their own schools on the continent. And for some people, that's the first time that a school has actually been built in that sort of area. And also for me, it's one of those things that, I mean, I've, I've done a podcast on, on, on the white savior mentality. It's actually, a, it's a huge refutation of the, the white savior mentality of, you know, Africans can't help themselves. Uh, specifically in the south of the Sahara, it's like, oh, Africans, they, they're always in need of something. I mean, these are people who have dedicated their lives to improving the livelihoods of their local communities. And that's one thing that I really appreciated. And I've, I've also brought, you know, uh, an example in this podcast before where uh, in entrepreneurial leadership, we did a class and we talked about this TED Talk where someone came to, to Africa and to Zambia specifically and they went and they wanted to plant tomatoes and a hippo ended up eating the tomatoes because they weren't familiar with, you know, the, the fact that, you know, there's a river right there. They didn't know about the hippos because they didn't live in the continent, right? So even the, it's not like you're, for example, telling people that, oh, you can leave the continent, become superheroes with all this knowledge and you're going to save Africa. It's more like you need to understand your community. You need to work with your community to form solutions. So I think that combined with the fact that people are actually returning to the continent means that you're actually going to get more sustainable projects, hopefully in the future, or at least they're going to, at least um, the alumni are going to be helping people like, you know, with these skills, et cetera, and actually teaching people about these different ways of how to become self-dependent, uh, sorry, dependent on yourself and things like that. So I think it's really powerful. And even speaking on that, uh, let's talk about, you know, things like building a box, GSP, a catalyst, thing, a catalyst year, 
because GSPN building a box are actually led by alumni. Let's talk about how that can actually impact the continent in the, the next five years or so. And then Catalyst here is more like for people who want to come to, to ALN. You can basically explain what that is for, for the listeners. Yeah, um, you know, I think this connects back to the conversation we were having about um, broadening access to the different programs that ALA has uh, designed over time. So if we think that something like EL is useful, can we create opportunities for more young people to access it, even if they're not doing the full two-year diploma program? Um, GSP is um, a short courses program that happens, you know, in the in the northern hemisphere of summer, but really the, the winter here in South Africa in July and August usually Things have been a bit different in COVID times, but this, I think 2022 is going to be an important restart year for us. Um, and it's one version of a program that young people from anywhere can sign up for and come and have an experience that's part of the ALA experience. Um, I think another important example that's also student-led is the ALA Model African Union Conference, um, which is an opportunity to participate in a simulation of the Model African Union. And then I think, you know, creates a facilitated discussion about issues of African concern, where you can meet other Africans and talk about things that Africans should know about. Uh, Build in a Box is, um, uh, is, a, is a program where ALA students run um, EL, short leadership development programs um, at home in their home countries, working together. Um, and that's another way in which we've tried to find opportunities to spread the DNA of ALA and find other um, ways to create access. Yeah. I think that also just kind of refutes the point that, you know, ALA in and of itself is, you know, based on this idea of elitism and, you know, it's it's maybe, I don't know, three, four percent acceptance rate. And that's all that matters. It's like, uh, I guess what we're trying to, to talk about when it comes to ALA is that there's an idea that we have and there's other people who have had similar ideas. I mean, there's not the build model isn't the only one that exists in terms of entrepreneurship or project management. Uh, the project model canvas is something that's, you know, uh, been done by other people. So it's like we're saying, hey, we have an idea and we're looking for people who are particularly interested in this idea and we're accepting applications based on, you know, who we think matches most in terms of like, you know, who would be able to use this opportunity the best. And for those who participate in things like Global Scholars Program, you also get a taste of that. I mean, it shows that you're interested. We, we can give you access to, for example, the full experience, obviously because of resources, but we do want you to, for example, go ahead and share this with others and let them be the judge and, you know, actually test it out. It's a matter of trial and error. And I think that that is actually so, so, so important. And I mean, even future wise, I mean, I'm talking a lot about self-sufficiency of the African continent. That's something that I really, really want uh, for all these different countries. Uh, and I think this is actually one of the ways to do that. And uh, even Dambisa Moyo actually wrote about it in her book, uh, Dead Aid, when she, talk about, she talked about the example of, you know, aid in and of itself. And I want to just relate that to, you know, these ideas that ALA actually is teaching, because you, you have people who are now thinking about, actually, hey, we don't necessarily need funding to go to our governments and then just be used blindly, or you, you, you don't want people to just sort of give the IMF, I mean, ask the, ask the IMF for money and they can spend it on projects that they deem to be fit. But you have people who are already in the community, they've lived in the community, they've been raised by the community. They're going to come and do their own projects. But in Dambisa Moyo's example, she actually gave the example of someone who sells mosquito nets. But you have, for example, now someone saying, hey, then Africa, they need mosquito nets. And they send people mosquito nets. They 
because of the supply, that man goes out of business or that woman goes out of business. And now you actually have uh, people that are also unemployed if they're making mosquito nets. So, I mean, it really challenges. And I'm, I'm curious to see how we can flip development discourse um, on its head, essentially. And I think that Ailey is actually playing a really, really key role in that. I, mean, I don't know if you want to comment on that because you also made a couple of facial expressions, you know. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I, I, I think the point's really important. Obviously, we're not going to, um, the problems are only getting harder, whether it's resource problems, population problems, demographic problems, health problems, education problems, they're not getting easier. Um, and it's clear that we're not going to solve them using the tools that we're using the last 50 years, the last 100 years. Um, it's also, in my view, you know, it's not just an issue of African concern, it's an issue of global concern, you know, widening socioeconomic gaps, uh, a widening commitment, people just generally accepting, which wasn't generally accepted 100 years ago, that everyone deserves a dignified life. It's not, you, can, you can't really argue the opposite of that anymore. Okay, well, if we all believe that, and the situation is only getting more difficult, obviously, we need different, different approaches to solving this problem. Um, and I, yeah, I hope that I hope that ALA can make some kind of small contribution towards towards finding some of the solutions that will stick. Yeah, awesome. And I think we're actually, you know, about to close off. Uh, but uh, I mean, it's been a great discussion so far, and I hope the listeners are just taking taking quite a lot from this. And you can always look at ALA and like you know its website uh, just to find out a bit more about this idea but also look at the African Leadership University if that's something that you might be interested in. And also be, feel free to also just, you know, share your ideas, critique the model, because that's how we actually get better. And I mean, we have other, uh, for example, other academies around the world that are doing similar things. You know, for example, if you look at the MPESA Foundation uh, in Kenya, they're doing something similar as well. And there's also a couple of other schools that are trying to do the same thing. So this is actually quite great. And like, we're not trying to see it as, oh, it's competition. The idea is that even if it is competition, right, we're all fighting towards the same goal. And like, you know, that's the main point. It's like, you're going to get there. And uh, regardless of who gets there first, as long as we get that together, that's the main thing about the African continent that we need to focus on. So now, obviously, um, I mean, uh, we've talked about ALA, we've talked about the structure of ALA. And now perhaps, I guess there's questions because we talked about philanthropy and, you know, the model of ALA. And also a couple of other people have brought up the question of, the heavy ties that uh, ALA has, for example, to the US. And sometimes actually people go to the extent of saying that the, the institution is becoming, in quotes, Americanized, yeah? So, I mean, my question, I guess, would be to what extent can we involve non-African individuals and entities in our search for emancipation for the African continent? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think there's a few, there's a few ways to to talk about it. I mean, I think maybe the brass tacks first, um, ALA doesn't accept any funding from anyone anywhere that uh, requires us to make particular changes or decisions in the curriculum or to um, make particular policy changes, right? The closest thing that might happen is someone says, I'd like to sponsor South African students specifically and we allocate their scholarship funding to South African students. But it doesn't mean no one's going to say you have to admit at least 50% South Africans. That's not, that's not funding that we'd accept. Nor is someone saying you have to teach X, Y, or Z in your curriculum in order for us to fund you. Uh, people get excited about certain ideas that we do include, and they might want to sponsor in particular um, our science program or engineering work or 
um, or entrepreneurial leadership, but that's stuff we were already doing that they want to get behind. So I think that, um, you know, to kind of put that in an abstract principle, I think people who are trying to solve problems need to be thoughtful and strategic about how they marshal the resources for solving those problems. And the reality is we've just had a lot more success raising funds abroad than we have on the continent. Um, and I think there's a number of reasons for that, including the professional ties and the personal relationships of the original founders. But it's, it's, it happens to be the way that we've been able to create this experience so far. And I feel that we've been able to do it in a way that doesn't challenge or, or, um, or have a detrimental impact on the institution's independence or credibility. Um, you know, in fact, maybe to some extent, perversely, it creates more credibility that you are receiving funding from funders who are particularly discerning, if you want to call it that. Um, I think the, the, the other thing that's important to say that comes up in this conversation about, you know, is ALA a neo-colonial institution or is it decolonial? Um, is attached to the way that we talk about entrepreneurship. And I think, I think it's an important critique to be conscious of and to think deeply about. Because on the one hand, education should empower you and it should set you free. And one of the ways that maybe it can do that is to give you the tools to employ yourself. And you know, my colleagues on the Anzisha side of the organization, particularly Mr. Adler, We'll talk a lot about the need to inspire and enable many, many young, many, many more young Africans to become job creators, because otherwise you're not going to solve the employment problem. Other, other people can, can look at the same argument and say, well, actually, telling people to become entrepreneurs and to employ themselves is trying to distract them from the fact that the world has robbed them of what they should be afforded by simple fact of being being human, right? Like if you, and this becomes more and more popular and, and it's not a personal opinion, you know, if you follow an anti-capitalist discourse um, that, that you're actually just kind of applying a plaster to a problem that's not gonna be solved before you turn the table on its head. I think that ALA needs to be careful about navigating that critique uh, and thoughtful about how you give people tools, but allow them to make the political decisions about what they use those tools to do, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that's actually a, a really powerful point. Uh, and even, I mean, I, I came across a video the other day talking about, you know, um, whether or not you, you can actually uh, I mean, if you're promoting quotes capitalist uh, discourse or whatever, I mean, some people could say that this is promoting capitalist discourse by saying that people should have entrepreneurial leadership. I would actually disagree because a free market can exist without it being capitalist per se. I would actually argue that uh, due to my own, you know, just experiences and beliefs. Um, <clears throat> but also I think, yeah, it, it makes a very important point. Uh, you have people who have uh, ideas and you have people that... Um, uh, also, you know, they have those ideas. And at the end of the day, we also live in a world that also operates off of money as well. So those ideas have to either run themselves as a nonprofit organization, or sometimes someone can actually make profit for, off of it. But the idea is that I don't think that ALA is actually telling people to, uh, to become business people who are focused on sucking the continent off of its resources. And that's not something that I know 
most students would want to do. Most of the ventures that I've actually, you know, been privy to are actually based on community projects. And even though the person might be making profit, for example, the community is also heavily benefiting from it. For example, you have someone like Jesse Forrester with Mazi Mobility, who is working on electrical vehicles, essentially. Uh, and that's something that's going to help a lot of different people. And it's challenging, if anything, another capitalist dynamic of, you know, you have people who are these major oil companies and gas companies. It's really severely going to challenge that, especially because the continent is, a, is sort of like a vacuum for that market where these vehicles could actually become really popular. So I think uh, it's actually, it's a very good question to be asked. And uh, I totally agree with, uh, with the way it's been phrased. And we'll actually talk about Anzisha a bit later um, before we, we end the podcast. But even that concept of, you know, non-Africans, et cetera. I mean, one thing that I've been really reflecting on is that, yeah, you, it's very easy to just theorize about things. Uh, and especially when it comes to funding, it would be great if we had more African people funding it, in my opinion. But obviously, sometimes people don't also want to give you money. Sometimes people just don't have that interest. Sometimes people aren't earning from the right sources where you feel like it won't be ethical for you to associate yourselves with them. And then also at the same time, we need to remember the, the resource allocation between the global north and the global south. That's something that I've actually realized is that over time, it's actually becoming, uh, it's become more difficult actually uh, to source funding from the African continent without even getting, for example, a proxy outside of the continent. And that's a bigger conversation that we need to have. Uh, and I guess it's, it's a question of necessity and like, you know, to what extent can we actually also involve African funding without involving non-African funding? I think that's a question I haven't answered for myself. And I also credit the founders for trying to, I mean, you're, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, basically, because uh, it's going to be it's uh, it's going to be very difficult to navigate um, that dynamic in and of itself. And even when I, I totally agree, it's 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 also like now a question of you don't want the African Leadership Academy to become a non-African Leadership Academy because there's that idea of we want to really like lead our own journey, etc. And you go into this whole identity question of like you know, uh, which uh, where where do we draw the line of like you know who's not African, etc. Uh, but I mean, that's something that I think everyone needs to just sort of like think about when it comes to large projects on the African continent. Even for example, even if it was someone like Akon donating, uh, you know, the a billion dollars to the African Leadership Academy, like uh, that does that mean that he's the right person to do it? And like also some people are of that opinion that, you know, uh, it's only indigenous Africans that are related enough to these issues to know much about them so there's there's so many questions that even need to be answered but like thank you once again for for your answer i think this is something that we can perhaps come to a bit later but also before we close because i think we didn't miss out anzisha just tell us a bit more about the anzisha program because i think it's something that for me is actually it's quite good in terms of we're talking about now african institutions funding African people to do work for the African continent, something that I'm really, really passionate about. So can you just share, share with us a bit about the Anzisha uh, project and also how people can get involved if they want to? Yeah, so, um, you know, African Leadership Academy is, is, a, is a somewhat large organization, larger than it was 10 years ago. Uh, and the diploma program, or which is what we've been talking about most of the time today, is this two-year leadership development program that that is kind of the, the first initiative that ALA had. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think 10 years ago now, um, we added another program that was really focused on one of the core beliefs, which is that more young people need to choose entrepreneurship as a career. 
And so there was the question of what can we do to inspire that? And the NZ Prize, um, and you can learn more by going to nzshaprize.org, um, A-N-Z-I-S-H-A, uh, is um, an initiative to inspire very young entrepreneurs, people between the age of 14 and 20, 21, um, to choose entrepreneurship. And you do that by telling the stories of young people who have already done it and succeeded. And um, you do that by identifying young people who are attempting it and, and, and giving them resources um, and connecting them to, to more um, opportunities to raise more resources. And you do it by enabling the ecosystem and some important stakeholders, which are parents and teachers in creating resources built on ALA's learnings that parents and teacher, teachers can access. Um, I think there's lots of ways to get involved. If you're a young person who started a business, you can apply for the prize um, and win uh, a significant amount of funding. Um, you can also nominate young people who, who you think fit the bill. But if you're a teacher or a parent, you can also just get engaged in the programs that we've created for more parents and teachers to encourage young people to take what is a courageous and difficult path. Thank you so much, Dean Hatim, for your time. That's going to wrap it up for our podcast today. But <clears throat> I think this is really exciting. Um, I remember before joining the Academy, I actually had quite a bit of a pessimistic view on you know, the, the affairs of the continent. But being around uh, so many people with so many ideas that actually have the capacity and the potential and the will to execute those ideas, it's really, really changed the way I see things. And I hope that more people can either benefit from this program or go ahead and start your own. <laughs> you know, go ahead and start your own uh, form of academy for different people in different sectors. Uh, and this is definitely, in my opinion, where uh, revolutionizing African education, there's a major contribution being uh, being facilitated by ALA and the African Leadership University, that entire franchise as a whole. So thank you so much, Dina team. Is there anything you want to say before we, we go off air? No, thanks for the opportunity to talk about ALA. Um, applications are open right now, africanleadershipacademy.org slash apply. Um, you can nominate a young person between 16 to 19. Anybody between 16 to 19 can apply. And I hope I get to meet some of your listeners in the near future. All right. Thank you so much again to everyone that's listening. Um, I'll try and also just leave those links in the description of the podcast as well. And we will see you in the next season.